Estate Disruptors. Today we have Paul Sparks with Bunny Hill Properties. And uh, Paul flew in from Denver, Colorado to talk about how he created a business treasury that pays for all his business operating expenses. If this is your first time tuning in, I'm Steve Trang, sales trainer. Every month, we help hundreds of people buy more houses at deeper margins. If you want to join us on our training calls, DM me the word sales on Instagram. And I am on a mission to create 100 millionaires. And the information on this podcast alone is enough to help you become a millionaire in the next five to seven years. If you will take consistent action, I promise you, you will become one. And the show is brought to you by our sister company, InvestorLift. Get access to over 2 million cash buyers across the country. Go to InvestorLift.com, put in disruptors to get 10% off. I've noticed recently that with this kind of chaos in our current environment, lots more people are looking at it. So check it out if that's something that you think might help you with your business. If you get value out of the show, please tag a friend below. Share this episode right now. That way we can all grow together. And uh, this is a live show, so please ask your questions for Paul to answer. Ready? Ready. All right. So first question is, what got you into real estate? Yeah, so um, growing up, my mom was actually a real estate attorney. So I sort of had some you know, experience in the real estate market, um, but chose to take a different route. I actually uh, got an engineering degree in college. My dad was an engineer um, and then realized I wanted nothing to do with engineering. So I got into sales and I was a, you know, working with a corporate. How quickly when you were in, when you're in school, did you figure out you didn't want to be an engineer? So they had this program called a co-op where you would work, you know, kind of a rotation for one company. Um, you know, so I would go to school in the fall, uh, work in the spring, school in the summer, work in the fall sort of thing. So I didn't even graduate. And I realized I'm like, I cannot do this for the rest of my life. Um, did you finish engineering school? I did. I finished. I was an industrial engineer and it was a fantastic, uh, degree for me because it focuses a lot on continuous improvement and efficiency and process improvement, stuff like that. So it served me well, mm -hmm. uh, but I used it very little. Um, yeah. So then your first job had nothing to do with engineering. Well, uh, I was actually a sales engineer, so okay. I was selling automation equipment to engineers, which was a better fit for my personality, I think. Yeah. All right. So you're the you're you're selling to engineers. That's right. I mean, this is going to sound really terrible, but in my mind, in my mind, I I go to office space, and you might be too young for that. But the guy no like way. I deal with the damn engineers. Uh huh. That was you. Yeah, exactly. Well, you, you, you know, as you're an engineer, right? It's, there's not a lot of engineers that turn into salespeople. Right. Um, yeah. So this was this nice little niche for me where I could, um, you know, still engage with a lot of the technical stuff, which I liked, uh, but not have to do any of it. <laughs> yeah. There you go. That makes sense. Yeah. Okay. So you start off as a sales engineer right out of college. Yep. How long did you pursue that, that route? So... I was doing that for about eight years, but it was, um, you know, it was constant travel. I was for, for three or four years there, I was in two cities a week kind of thing. Um, you know, I was working with companies like, you know, Amazon, United Airlines, Southwest Airlines. So I had to travel quite a bit to get there. And, uh, yeah, it was just exhausting to say the least. Um, it sounds like there were a handful of clients, but you're always visiting two cities a week. I mean, like, were you meeting with like the big bosses or are you having to go meet with like middle management? Why were you always traveling? Well, if you're trying to sell a large system to a company like United Airlines, say it's a very complex, uh, you know, environment, you gotta, you gotta work purchasing, you gotta work engineering, you gotta work design and all these, you know, different people. So, 
um, you know, it was it was years of building these relationships, building these kind of uh, business cases with all these different stakeholders and stuff like that. So, you know, I was fortunate to have that experience to be able to figure out how to structure deals in a very complex environment like that. And, uh, and yeah, some guys were in Chicago, some guys were in LA, some guys were in Dallas. So you got to go where you got to go. Yeah. Okay. So, um, I'm hearing a lot of variables, a lot of balls in the air whenever you're trying to sell all these people. So I mean, a typical transaction, how many people had to buy in to, to the sale? A lot, right? And, uh, and then you figure out, well, ultimately, it comes down to a few key decision makers, but there's a lot of stakeholders that are involved influencing those people. So I think with complex sales, you realize that, uh, you know, there's not one decision maker, there's usually a bunch. And those decision makers are taking uh, their advice on what to do from the people below them. So you got, you know, the, the, the engineers, the senior engineers, and then the directors, and then the VPs. And so, yeah, that was my experience, was learning how to navigate these complex uh, environments and um, learning how to sell what needed to be sold to each individual stakeholder. You had to have like a custom sale, like a custom pitch for each one of these people? Not at all. Um, yeah, that was that was the fun part, but also the challenging part was learning how to make these deals. I mean, we, my, the company that I was working for at the time hired me to figure out how to sell this particular automation equipment into this new industry. So, um, you know, brand new technology to a new industry, having to, to understand, you know, really what are they looking to solve, try to understand their problems. It was not a lot of pushing a product because we didn't have the product. We had to create it. Um. And how long was your typical sales cycle with this many stakeholders? Uh, years, like a year, two years. You know, we talk about that all the time, that big difference between going from that to going to, you know, sitting at a kitchen table with a mm -hmm. homeowner trying to, you know, buy their house. Much different sales cycles, much, you know, faster turnover. So, yeah, these, these longer sales cycles definitely uh, are a challenge to deal with. So how does that compare, right? You got, I don't know, six Stakeholders, 10 stakeholders, how many stakeholders typically in a transaction? Yeah, that's probably about right. Okay, so you got this many stakeholders. You got to influence all of them, make sure they're all on board, making sure that they're all supporting one another, going towards the same direction versus like a probate situation. And you got like two or three siblings. Like how, is there any parallel to this? I think the sales process has a lot of similarities to it, right? You got to understand what's actually the problem we're trying to solve here. You need, you know, everything is an emotional sale, even in, you know, the, the B2B world. Mm -hmm. um, they like to make data-driven decisions, but uh, it's all based on emotions, right? Well, how does this project benefit that director? Mm -hmm. um, and, and we see the same thing in uh, typical real estate sales, wholesaling, things like that. Um, but it was adjusting from B to B to B to C. There's a significant amount of more emotion that's displayed in that in that sale. So that was definitely a shift for me, learning how to kind of handle those situations. Yeah. Okay. So we were talking about you know your mom was a real estate attorney. You went to engineering, and then you went to sales engineer. When did you decide maybe real estate is the way to go? So. In 2018, I bought my first house, and I didn't really know a whole lot about real estate investing, but I was, you know, making good money, traveling, selling all these, you know, these deals, and so bought a house, and then started realizing I could buy another house and mm -hmm. put a renter in that house and collect, you know, properties this way. And so once I had that sort of aha moment, it was like 
an obsession, right? Uh, everything I could learn about real estate, every book I could read, get my hands on. Um, so we bought another house and then we bought another house and then we bought another house and we just kept collecting these properties. Uh, You're just buying a bunch of rental properties with your active income. Right. And we would move into the house. Uh, my girlfriend at the time, my wife now, uh, you know, we would move in. I'd buy this house. Of course, she had to move constantly, which was uh, not her favorite thing to do. But, um, yeah, we would buy it with conventional, you know, 5% down, less than 3% interest rate, you know, great. And then a year, year and a half later, we would turn that into a rental and move to the next place. Um, so we, we collected three long-term rentals and a short-term rental. And uh, they just cash flowed like crazy. Yeah. But in this, all this time, even though you're acquiring rental properties, you're still working at a nine to five. That's right. Or whatever bizarre hours because you're traveling all the time. Not a nine to five. Definitely yeah. not. Yeah. Okay. So then when did you pivot to go hard into active real estate income? Yeah. Um, really, it was a sort of fortunate situation. Um, I had been working this you know, really large deal with United Airlines and we were getting ready to take a, a purchase order to roll out our solution to all their major hubs. And that was in January, uh, I should say February, March of 2020. And, mm -hmm. you know, and then this COVID thing hit. And so, of course, all the spending dried up and they were like, yeah, Paul, we're going to have to wait a little bit to write you that check. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's like, oh, that's not good. Um, you know, so it was at that point where I started realizing, well, <clears throat> you know, maybe this is my opportunity to uh, to go full time at investing and build my own, you know, business. And so, throughout 2020, I was just consuming as much education as possible, learning everything I could. At the end of that year, I decided to go full time at investing, um, mostly because I had this nest egg of cash flowing real estate properties that allowed me to do that. Did that deal ever close? That big one. Um, I think my old boss is still working on that one. Yeah. Because so, we're talking about long sales cycles, so, and we're talking about, like, you know, like, a lot of stakeholders and this, this complex sale, but for comparison's sake, I mean, like, what kind of volume are we talking about as far as, like, what, what is it dollar amount that you were selling? So what we were selling, uh, if you've ever gotten on a, an airplane and you look outside when they load the bags into the belly of the plane, they've got a conveyor belt, and somebody sits there and they scan barcodes, um, but, you know, humans are the most unreliable component of every system. So what United was trying to get us to, to solve for was a better way to track bags in and out of the belly of the plane. And so what we were selling was a, a, an array of cameras that we would mount to the conveyor belt that would take a picture of the bag, find the little barcode on there, scan it, and send it back to the, you know, the, the hub, so to speak. And, um, you know, this was a continuous improvement project. It was a technology project. And then, you know, we were, I, I forget the exact dollar amount, but it was, you know, 10, 15 million, something like that mm -hmm. to, to roll out the first um, wave of scanners. And, uh, you know, again, when things tighten up, all of a sudden the budget for improvements and technology shrinks pretty quickly. So, yeah, yeah that's what happened. So this big check you're expecting never arrives. Right. And you say, okay, maybe I do need to really work for myself. Yeah. And so you said you went all in in 2021. Yep. I uh, left my job at the end of 2020 um, and went all in beginning of 2021. Okay. So um, how was that? It was a lot of fun. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I mean, year one was, uh, I think it's just, it's, it, it, 
aligns with my approach typically with with most sales was I like to say we 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 pressed a lot of buttons. I needed to see what you know uh, a wholesale was. I needed to see what a flip was. We do these pop tops that we mm-hmm. talk about in Denver. We did you know. We did those. Um, retail, we did everything. We pressed a bunch of buttons trying to understand where, where do we want to, you know, pursue? What direction do we really want to go here? Yeah, and I think that's a classic challenge a lot of people getting into real estate run into. is like, okay, like, which direction do I want to go? Because I remember on, uh, as a realtor, they're like, well, you, do you want to be a buyer's agent or a list or a seller's agent? It's like, both. Right. What are you talking about? And then I get my license and I get out there and like, why do only residential when you can do commercial? Yeah. Right? And then you can do business. You can sell restaurants and gas stations too. Like, <laughs> let's just attack everything. There's a lot of shiny objects. There's a lot of shiny objects. And what you learn is that, uh, what's it? Um, a, ma- a jack of all trades is a master of none. Yep. Right? And um, so I didn't crush any of those roles in the, mm-hmm. <laughs> in the first few years. So well, what, how was your experience trying to do all those different things? Pretty similar, you know, I, I don't think the intention in year one was to go out and crush it. I think it was to, you know, kind of press that button. Let's see what happens. Press that button. You know, I, I was in this for the long term. Like, I, you know, I'm committed. We're going to be an investor. Mm-hmm. Um, and if we're going to build a business around a particular strategy, well, I want to understand all the options. I want to understand, um, you know, what works and what doesn't. So, you know, in year one, we had a lot of things that worked well and a lot of things that didn't work well. Lost money on deals. Uh, we made a ton of money on some deals. And um, so I, I would say it was, a, it was a success based on, uh, you know, the goals that I had in mind. Yeah. So when you set off on your grand adventure, you didn't necessarily say, I need to make this amount or I need to summon this many properties. Really, you were just trying to find your groove. Yeah. And it, and it came because I had, you know, my wife was had a stable job. We had cash flowing real estate. I didn't need to make any money. Um, so it just, it gave me a lot of flexibility and, uh, you know, options to be mm-hmm. able to try this, to be able to fail. Um, I wouldn't have been able to done it, have, to have done that if I didn't have, you know, those other things behind me as that base. Sure. So, um, what were a handful of mistakes, two or three mistakes that you learned early on that you would want to share for anyone getting into real estate right now? Sure. One first thing that comes to mind is, um, you know, I had to learn how to transition from being a, an individual contributor on a team. That's all I'd ever done to really learning how not only how to sell in a completely new environment, new, new products, new everything, um, but also how to be a leader and build a team. Um, I think I've, I failed at that. Um, you know, I, I, I hired a lot of friends. Um, I didn't train people. It was, uh, it was just a lot of mistakes that I had made in year one. Um, let's see, I made a lot of poor choices with contractors, you know, certain guys thinking that, uh, you know, they'd be a great fit, um, for, for construction projects that just didn't turn out to be a great fit. That wants to be a pretty common thing. Imagine that. Right. Um, yeah. So, you know, got, got bit by that a few times. Uh, the one that we were actually talking about before this, I thought was, uh, I, I don't know how I missed this, but one of the things that I did was sent out a direct mail campaign. Mm-hmm. I think I spent like 10 or 15 grand on this campaign with a dead number on it. <laughs> so the number didn't work. So the number didn't work. And we sat there wondering like, why are we not getting any calls? What's going on? And it wasn't you know, later that, you know, I, I, I figured out that I had a, a dead number on that. And these was are just a, the things you learn from going so fast. Was it a typo? Was it a number you didn't renew? It was a number that had not been renewed. Um, 
Yeah, so it worked, and then it just stopped working. So, yeah, yeah. these are just the things, you you know, kicks in the shin that you Well, don't feel so take. bad. I mean, that's 15000 never coming back. But we literally just got new signs, right? We went from Stunning Homes Realty to Real Brokerage. And so we got new signs. And the sign comes in. I look at that number. It's like, that's not my number. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, what do you mean? It's like, no, I know my number. That's not my number. Because I have a number specifically for sign calls. Uh, it's like, that's not my number. Right. And they're like, what number is that? So we called it, right? And just nothing. To get all our signs remade, uh, it wasn't a ten fifteen thousand dollars mistake, but it was a couple hundred. You know, it's still yeah. irritating. Well, these are the <laughs> nightmares that we have now, right? And I'm, <laughs> you know, it, it's just a result of going so fast, trying mm-hmm. to do so many things, trying to, you know, I think one of the things I learned in year one is to slow down. Um, you got to pay attention to the details. You know, for a lot of people that go into business for themselves, they're, they're these, you know, quote, visionary types. And, you know, we, we're not detail oriented. And, um, I think that's what I learned in year one is too bad. You've got to learn how to do those things if you want to be successful in business, or you're going to, you're going to have holes all over your bucket, leaking water out. How do you fix this mistake? What did, what systems or processes did you put in place to make sure you don't send out any direct mail with bad numbers on it? Yeah, I think it, it comes down to um, building processes and systems around that to checklists, things to do. You know, that's it's so obvious now, like simple right. things like build a checklist for, you know, anything you're going to spend over a certain amount. Mm-hmm. Um, but these just weren't processes and systems we had in place at the time. There's only so many things you can do in year one, and you're trying to inch the ball forward with everything. And, uh, you know, I think um, what's what's working for us now is inching one thing forward, putting yeah. our energy into one thing, taking that one beachhead at a time before going to take another beachhead, right? And how does that apply to direct mail? It just means slow down, do it right, make sure it's done well, um, and not stop trying to do everything all at once. Uh, another thing we had talked about um, earlier was uh, hiring practices. Mm-hmm. So you made some questionable hiring decisions. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, you know, I wanted to work with my friends, right? And right. we all have the greatest intentions going into it. We want to, we all want to be successful. We all want to get, you know, financial certainty. I mean, how great is it things. if we make a lot of money with our friends? Let's go. Let's do this. It's thing. Awesome. Yeah. Didn't quite work out that way. Well, I think it all falls back on the leader, right? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's not that they were not a good fit for, for that. It's just that, you know, I had to learn leadership skills. I had to learn how to grow and manage a team and, you know, bringing on your friend and being like, let's just go make some money together. It just doesn't work. Yeah. So what did you change since? Um, with the hiring process, we do, you know, the strengths finder test, which is similar to the PI and the Colby and stuff like that. And so I've just used the strengths finder. So, I think that works well, but um, hiring people based on their strengths, um, making sure it seems so obvious, of course, to say this out loud. It's just so funny the things you, you it's do. It's common wrong. sense after you realize it. Right. Um, and then hiring slowly, I think, was another uh, thing I've sort of learned is, is slow down. Um, and you're, in your first year, you have this urgency, this kind of. Um, you know, you're, you're just, you're getting moving quicker than you probably should be. Mm-hmm. And so I think just slowing the process down, being willing to wait for the right person, um, also hiring a recruiter to help yeah. you do a lot of that stuff and filter those things was a huge, you know, help for me. Well, I mean, I think I would argue the other, the other side, because I think a lot of people are too careful, too precise and, and, and have all the ducks in a row. And I think it's better to make a mess than not have a mess to be cleaned up. 
That's a fair point. Um, I certainly have cleaned up a lot of messes. That's for sure. That's no, what's we worse all, for me. We've all cleaned up a lot of messes, but yeah. I think having a mess to clean up versus make sure everything, all the I's are dotted, T's and cross, and, and, mm-hmm. and never making any progress. Yeah, and it's, you know, I think good leaders do and then make it the right decision, yeah. right? You, you, you don't always, you can't make the right decision always at first. You have to make the decision and then make it right. Yeah. Okay, so uh, don't hire people you like. <laughs> hire people that fit the role. Right. Having a checklist for, for your expensive marketing pieces. Yes. Um, anything else? Any other major blunders the first year? Um, yes, I would say when it comes to construction, um, it's better to say no to projects uh, in favor of, how do I say this? The people who I'm in business with that I'm working with now are fantastic. And I wish that I had gone back and done it differently to say, instead of just doing deals to try to do deals, mm-hmm. you know, slow down and find and build that relationship with those construction partners. Because, um, you know, in a market like Denver, you can, you can do very well on a really good, on a one good project. Um, and so I just got caught up in this, let's try to do as many projects as we can. And you just make mistakes that way. Um, yeah. And then you mentioned earlier something earlier on the call or on, on, on the show was a pop top. Yeah. So for those of us not in Denver, what exactly is a pop top? Oh, we're calling them hamburgers now too. No, I think it's funny because you know pop top is uh, in these premier neighborhoods in Denver. You have these older brick ranches, and uh, you know when you walk in the basement, it's you know like six foot five, six foot eight kind of ceilings. And so, are these unfinished or finished basements? Typically unfinished, um, and so you know very underutilized. And most people are coming in and they're just scraping that and building a you know forty five hundred five thousand square foot white box mansion, right? Mm-hmm. Single level. Uh, three, three stories, right? Okay, That's three, what they would normally stories. do. But what we okay. do is we go in and we'll, uh, we'll chip the basement down. We'll dig it down a foot and a half and we'll take the roof off and add a third story. Um, so you take a, you know, an 1100 square foot brick ranch and you turn it into, you know, 3,500. Um, and it's got a lot of the original character of the old house. Some, you know, people like that kind of charm where you're, mm-hmm. um, it's still sort of a, it's, it's sort of halfway between a, a fix and flip and a full development. Um, and they've just been, they've been fantastic deals for us. It sounds a little bit like a structural integrity nightmare. Well, and this is where it comes down to, you got to have the right relationships. I would never be able to do deals like that if I yeah. didn't have the construction guys, you know, uh, on so my team. So Paul is the one in charge of this project. We would fail. We would fail. <laughs> yeah. Got it. Okay. Yeah. So you got the right people, the right experience yeah. that know what they're doing. And they're making this happen. That's right. Okay. And then uh, I think you shared with me that these are now your favorite projects. These are the kind of ones you want to focus on. Yeah. So uh, whereas 2021, your first full year, you were looking to try as many different types of deals as possible. But in 2022, you're, you're really more focused on these kinds of projects. Yeah. So the way I think about our real estate business is we've got two sides. And, you know, I talk a lot about barbells, uh, Mm -hmm. the strategy for investing. Um, and the analogy is if you're going to lift weights with a barbell, you don't load the weight in the middle. And, um, you know, so on one side of that barbell, we've got reliability. I want it to be easy. I want it to be boring almost, um, consistent. 
And, you know, that's things like uh, in low risk, right? So things where we don't have to put any of our own money into it. So um, retail, novations, wholesales, uh, things like that. They really fit that, that bucket. And um, on the other side, we have deals that can bring a lot of upside. And, you know, those are the pop tops. Those are the ground up development deals that I'm working on. Um, and we try to keep things out of the middle of the bar. So we're trying to stay away from fix and flips. You know, our experience with fix and flips is they can go really well, but they can also go really poorly. Yeah. Um, so there's just not, there's just, there's, you know, it's kind of the definition for me of loading the weight in the middle of the bar. Um, scaling a large team is also something I, you know, it takes up a lot of my time. It takes up a lot of effort. So we're looking for either real easy, you know, low, low risk or a lot of upside. Yeah. Um, okay. So that's interesting. So you say you don't want to scale because like right now what's popping, what's popular, everyone is saying like, I want to scale. I want to scale. I want to scale. Now, right now people are talking about like what's going on with the market, but until two weeks ago, everyone's talking about scaling, scaling, scaling. Yeah. You have a different perspective. I do. And I think, um, you know, obviously we're both in collective genius, so we get a chance to observe all of these different business owners and the, and the types of businesses that they run. Um, and real estate plays a big part of my investing portfolio, but, um, you know, where I've, where I get the most reward, I think is, is structuring large deals. Mm -hmm. It's raising money. Um, and in order for me to do those things, if I'm, you know, building a large business and operating this business, that's not the best place for me. Um, so when I go to CG, I look for guys who have the most boring business in the room, right? They're the ones who spend very little time on their real estate business because, you know, there's, there's other aspects of real estate that I prefer to spend my time on as opposed to, you know, growing a big team. So we've got a small, lean, mean team and we mm -hmm. do, um, you know, we're like a little family and it's, uh, and it's a great fit for, for what I want. Um, it's this idea of getting closer to the things you want, not chasing more. Right, which is a trap that I think a lot of investors fall in, chasing more. Um, that's definitely a principle we want to touch on later on. Uh, you talk about you want to do these bigger deals, and we kind of, when we were having lunch earlier, you, you, you mentioned that you were known as the whale hunter. <laughs> yeah. So it's interesting to see, like, <laughs> this personality uh, has, has, uh, or character trait has followed you from selling to the airlines to, yeah. to doing real estate. Um, so... Can you elaborate on closer? Because this is, I think, a really important topic that most people completely get wrong. Yeah. <clears throat> so um, I've been fortunate to get uh, mentorship from um, a couple guys, uh, Dan Nicholson, Nick Peterson. They call this uh, what they call the solvable problem. And essentially what this is, is a term um, to help you take your goals and turn it into a math equation, mm -hmm. right? Like we need a timeline. We need to know what we're working towards. Um, because typically when you get started, people like us, we have a tendency towards let's just do more. Let's build a bigger team. Let's do more deals. Yeah. And a lot of times that comes with trade-offs. That means less time spent with friends and family, less time spent on your hobbies and, you know, less time spent doing other business ventures that you, you may want to engage in. And so uh, the closer idea is based off of this idea of having a solvable problem. You got to know what you want out of this. 
the biggest risk that we all run is not getting what we want out of life. So if you don't have clarity around what it is you want out of business, you're going to take off and make a bunch of decisions. Those decisions can largely be influenced by more money, you know, more insert whatever it is for you. More material things. Right. Whatever that is. Um, And so they've helped me kind of understand what it is that, you know, is important to me, what I want to build. And so I have these guardrails and these, you know, bumpers to keep me from chasing more. And a lot of times that means you can't, you can't go hire the the massive team just because you want to, um, because it's going to take you away long-term from the things that you really want. Yeah. So I think, you know, the way you've explained it is to me, you know, off, off this uh, show was that if you don't know what you want, how can you possibly get it? Yeah. How do right. you know when you're getting closer? Yeah. So if you know what you want, now you can make all your decisions. Is this going to be closer or further away from my desired goal? Yeah. Yeah. And I think a lot of people get hung up on trying to define exactly where they want and then every step that needs to happen, you know, mm-hmm. in order to get there. Because let's face it, what I wanted three years ago is not the same as what I want now. I'm sure that's the same with you. Yeah. Um, this is a moving target and we need to have a mechanism to constantly reevaluate what is it that I really want. It's okay to change. We know this is a moving target. We call that what an infinite game. Mm-hmm. You're playing this infinite game with yourself of constantly trying to figure out, well, how do I get closer to the things I want? And we just need the next one or two things to go right. Yeah. Because then more information presents itself and then we can, we have this framework for decision-making. Yeah. Um, one thing you touched on was the fix and flips were the things that was least attractive. So either wholesale innovation or, or retail or um, big deals like grand slams, right? But fix and flip could go either way. So that's interesting. Can you elaborate on that? I think it comes back to me with the relationships. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I just don't have that relationship yet uh, where, where those deals are reliable or they present a lot of upside. We've lost money on fix and flips. We've got one now that's just a massive thorn in my side. I can't wait to get it pulled out. And for me, that does not represent the type of upside that I'm looking for. And it doesn't represent reliability for me either. So right now it's sitting in the middle of the bar. So is it something you say, you're talking about the right relationship. So you haven't found the who to fix this problem. Is that what I'm hearing? That's right. So if you had the right who, then that perspective changes? It could. And that relationship, I think what I've learned is, is slow down and build that relationship over time. Yeah. Um, trust is earned, especially in, you know, in this business. And uh, that's, that's how I'm approaching fix and flips now. Yeah. So going back to the pop tops we were talking about just a moment ago, um, you mentioned that you have the right people there. How did you find the right people? Because one challenge that we all experience is how do you find the right freaking contractors? Mm-hmm. How did you forge that relationship? It was very fortunate that the second home that I purchased was a, it was a brand new townhouse and the builders were amazing. It was this unbelievable product. I was blown away and I said, I want to get into business with those guys. Mm-hmm. And so I, this was probably, I would say this was beginning of 2020, I think when I bought that house. So I wasn't even full-time in real estate yet, but what I was looking at was, well, what, how do I add value to these people? What do they mm-hmm. have? What do they not have? 
Um, and through that process, I, I recognized one of the things that they needed was capital. The other was better deal flow. As a salesperson, those are two things I could contribute to. Yeah. So when I started Bunny Hill, it was really geared towards how do we add value to the types of people we want to be in business with long term. And so we were trying to source deals. I was fortunate to, to raise a couple million dollars in my first year that we used to get into some of these larger deals with them. So it was, it was the perfect example of how to build a relationship with someone over time. They weren't going to go into business with me right off the bat mm-hmm. because they, you know, what value did I bring to them? So I had to prove it. I had to demonstrate that value. And, you know, over the course of a year and a half, I was able to do that and able to get into projects with them. And, you know, now we're looking at expanding. We, uh, we're looking at building 26 townhouses at, at one point in time. I'm not sure if that one's going to go through, but the point is, is you got to find ways to add value to the people you want to be in business with. Otherwise, what are you doing? Yeah. Um, and that's, I think it's a very profound point that, you know, some people may miss. Um, now our very first interaction, we didn't really talk, but our very, very first interaction was Brewer Method. Yep. Right. So, uh, you signed up for Novations training with Eric Brewer and myself, and, uh, you mentioned that you enjoy that your team has learned this and can apply it in the living room. Mm -hmm. Can you share with me why you think Novations has been a great tool for you guys? So novations open up a lot of optionality, Mm -hmm. as I'm sure you know. So what they allow you to do is contract houses that most wholesalers, most fix and flippers would not be able to contract. And, you know, we can get these houses a lot of times in, you know, upper 80% of, you know, ARV, even, even higher in some cases. And there's not as much risk. We don't have to actually buy the house. We don't have right. to put our money in it. We have a longer time frame. It's also a great fit for the sellers because we're not sitting there trying to, you know, lowball them. Um, and they really like that. <laughs> I'm sure they do. Yeah. Uh, so uh, it's been helpful for your business. It has. And, um, you know, uh, Philip, my home buying specialist out there, he's become, you know, just a rock star at being able to pitch this. I think that was the biggest challenge I had at the beginning was I couldn't quite figure out how to explain it. Why, why should they do this versus other strategies? And once we figured out what the sellers really cared about, how to add value to them, we started getting them left and right. Uh, I think we've probably done five or six this year and they're probably some of our biggest deals. Yeah. That's awesome. So if you guys are interested in that, go to brewermethod.com. So the reason why I asked you to come onto the show, uh, we're talking about a business treasury. Now, business treasury, people probably have no idea what we're talking about. So let's start there. What exactly, let me me take a step back. Let's not start there. We'll get there in a second. There was a problem you were trying to solve. Mm -hmm. What was the problem you were trying to solve when you kind of happened onto this? Most new investors probably struggle with the same thing I struggle with. I know this because I've, you know, talked to a lot of people in CG, which is cash flow. Consistent cash flow, especially in your first couple of years, is is really challenging. 
uh, we would call this lumpy sales. You'd just get, you know, back in the corporate world, right? You'd get a big influx of cash, and then it would be a month or two of the roller coaster. It's just a roller coaster, right? And especially as you're getting the business started up, you know, you're on a, it's an assembly line. You're sales and marketing. Uh, prospecting, and then you're in the living room closing deals, and then we got to get these dispoed, and now we got to raise the money or whatever it is, and, and then we got to go all the way back to the beginning and start over. Yeah. So, cash that's assuming if you're wholesaling, that doesn't even mention if you're flipping. Yeah. So there's just all these this assembly line, and there were gaps, and cash flow was definitely the biggest problem in year one. And so, I would sit there and I would look at that six months worth of. Uh, expenses sitting in my bank account, staring at this money saying, it's being super lazy. It needs to get to work. Um, And I had no idea about this concept of a business treasury really until I got into the world of DeFi Mm -hmm. um, and learned about it from some of the guys, mentors I have in that space. So you, your situation was you had a bunch of money in the bank account that was doing absolutely nothing for you. Yes. And you're trying to figure out how you can use this money to basically make more money to fund your business. Yeah. Okay. So uh, is that more or less what a business treasury is? Yes. What a business treasury is, is essentially your, your business should operate as your operating business, but also as a bank. Mm -hmm. And we do this to add redundancy to the business so that you have security. You've got a cash flowing asset that you can borrow against that can produce cash flow for you, obviously. And it gives you, it gave me at least a lot of confidence and ability to take on more risk inside the business because I had more reliability. So a business treasury is designed to help you act as a bank and provide cash flow and reliability. Yeah. And I mean, if you look at, I think uh, Apple, I think they've got, they're sending more cash than anybody else. Mm-hmm. So is it a situation? Because like, I think with them, they just put a cash. And it's just cash. They don't, it, doesn't, it doesn't do anything for them. I think that, actually, I take that back. I think the only thing that they do with it is they borrow against it. Right. So they don't spend the cash. They just borrow against the cash so that they don't have to pay taxes or any of that other stuff. Right. So more or less, you're, you've got this pile of money and you're just... You're, you're lending against it. You're putting somewhere else. Like what, what vehicle are you using to have it build more money for itself? So the blockchain presents a lot of interesting opportunities. And one of the segments of blockchain that we've been taking most advantage of is called decentralized finance, shortened up to DeFi. Mm-hmm. And what DeFi is, is a way for... Uh, how do I explain this? I think it's easier to explain a centralized exchange first. Yeah. So the way most people buy crypto is they go on someplace like Coinbase or crypto.com, FTX, one of these places, and they buy a coin and they put it in their wallet and they wait and they hope that it goes up. Mm -hmm. Crypto has a lot of similarities to gambling. And this is how most people view the crypto space, which is why we stay away from the term crypto. Because yeah. it, it obvi- in, uh, you know, incites this gambling. I mean, you say crypto sounds like uh, stocks and gambling. For me, it's, it sounds like um, day trading. Yeah. Every time I hear someone talking about like, here's what Bitcoin's at, here's where Ethereum's at, I just hear instantly in my head day trading. That's right. Yeah. 
So, but, but 90, 95, I don't know what the percentage is. The, the majority of people that are buying and selling crypto are using it that way. Mm-hmm. And that's because on a, on a centralized exchange, that's all that there is. It's buy low, sell high. And the analogy that we've come up with is it, it's like giving your money, putting it in a savings account. The bank's going to pay you 0.2%. Meanwhile, they're taking your money, they're lending it out, they're earning fees on it, they're making a killing. Yep. And we don't have access to that because it's a centralized banking process. Just like in, in crypto, it's a centralized exchange. So, yeah, so Coinbase is making money kind of like E-Trade or some of these stock providers. Every time there's a transaction, they're making money. That's right. So Coinbase is making money as a centralized exchange. Yep. And then we're looking at DeFi separately. Correct. So the, this is a brand new space, first of all. Yeah. If you haven't heard about it, it's because it started in 2019, really. And it's, it's, it's going to revolutionize finance, in my opinion, because people like us can actually benefit from lending our money to this exchange. So what a centralized exchange does is they provide liquidity. So when you want to buy Bitcoin, and I've got to be willing to sell it. And so Coinbase says, cool, this guy wants to, to buy it. This guy wants to sell it. We're going to put up the money to act as liquidity to facilitate that trade. And when we pay fees, it all goes back to Coinbase. Mm-hmm. Well, in a decentralized exchange, you and me can actually lend our money to the exchange and benefit in the same way that a bank would from those trading fees. So anytime there's volume, anytime there's uh, fees that are applied to the transaction, it gets paid back to the liquidity providers. This is the whole beauty of a decentralized exchange is we can actually just act as lenders. We can lend our money to the exchange, keep it all in U.S. dollars, and earn outsized returns, significantly higher than you would get in any sort of savings account. I've described this as a high-yield savings account Mm -hmm. before. There's a lot of analogies. There's a lot of similarities to real estate. The, the other you know, analogy we came up with was, you know, imagine if you were a flipper and all you did was just buy the house and hope that it went up in value and sold it in two years. You did no work to it, nothing. That was all your strategy was, is hoping that, you know, betting on appreciation. And that makes no sense to us real estate investors. We would never do that. Right. But DeFi is well, like... That's what we would do when we buy Bitcoin. And we just wait. That's, that's what everyone does. And that's why I think why everyone has such a negative connotation of the day trading involved with crypto, because that's all that they've been presented with. But, you know, DeFi, the example is like, well, I'm going to buy this house. I'm going to get a mortgage on it. And then I'm going to borrow against it. It's going to pay me cash flow. The loan's going to get paid down. I've got all these wealth drivers with yeah. it. Then I can take that property and the cash flow that I make from it and the equity that I gain from it and use it to buy another house yeah. and grow my portfolio and accumulate these properties over time. That's the exact same strategy that we're using with DeFi. So let me kind of share an example. You tell me if I'm off base here, right? Okay. So me, you, eight other guys, we all throw in 100K, right? We have a million dollars there, right? Mm-hmm. That's our decentralized exchange. Um, and Anytime someone buys and sells off of there, there's a finance charge. Yep. The difference is every time someone buys and sells off our exchange, we get paid those service fees. So it's like owning a bank without having any of the overhead and keeping all the revenue. It's beautiful. Yeah. So it's a very interesting concept. Um, and uh, you're saying that with that, that model, you got it parked over here. That's able to pay for your regular operating expenses. 
Yeah, so what I was able to do in year one <clears throat> was take profit mm -hmm. off the table and instead of reinvesting it back into marketing, what I did is I put it in this business treasury strategy so that I, you know, the idea being, well, it's a high yield savings account. Let's see how this works. Mm -hmm. And it worked really well. Uh, I was producing enough cash flow that I could essentially use that to pay the operating expenses of the business. Now, the business was profitable, so I wasn't using it that way. I was using it to compound my business treasury to make myself even stronger and, and build that kind of cash reserves up, knowing that at any point in time, if I needed to use that uh, yield from that farm to pay my operating expenses, I could. Yeah. So I imagine, guys, there's some questions here. So please uh, fire away with your questions. Um, and, you know, for us, when, when I learned about this model, um, well, I guess I learned about this model at Collective Genius because this guy beat me for the belt. That's right. So I thought I had the best presentation. I, I mean, I, I was really proud of the presentation I put together. Yeah, and, and, the, and the crypto guy won. Imagine and, that. And the crypto guy won. Like, <laughs> son of us. So I had to learn more about it, right? And so as we've learned more, as I've learned more about it, actually went through, you, you trained some people, mm -hmm. uh, some other real estate investors on how to navigate this, this, uh, this world. And uh, so since then we've uh, partnered up, we started the Whale Club. Yep. So do you want to elaborate for everybody what, it is, what exactly is the Whale Club? So what we're doing is we're focused on building a community for high net worth real estate investors that want to learn how to leverage the blockchain to build their own business treasury. So it's a, it's a community and an education. What, what we found is that there's a, there's a massive language barrier mm -hmm. between real estate and crypto. I mean, we speak a whole different language, as you know, by now in the crypto world. And yeah. even the word crypto is this like ubiquitous. What does that even mean? Mm -hmm. So we have a lot of stuff that we talk about. It's, you know, it's a, essentially it's a fire hose to the face. And what yeah. we're able to do is slow it down, drip the information in over time so that, you know, you can learn this in a structured environment. And, you know, I was uh, fortunate to be able to show a lot of friends and family and, and people how to do all this. So I had some experience teaching it. And we started this as let's just get 10 guys together and see how this goes. Yeah. Obviously it went well and here we are today. Yep. So if you guys want to find out more, go to blockchainwhales.com. We have some information up there on to learn more about, you know, some of the basics of, of decentralized financing, but also uh, there's a seminar you'll be putting forth next week yep. about uh, this exact topic we're talking about. We're, we're going to go in much greater detail. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I, one thing I really want to emphasize, because when you and I talked about this, is that this is not about the crypto. This is not about the blockchain. We're leveraging blockchain. But really, the, the core here is about some of the principles and frameworks, rubrics, mm -hmm. right, for investing the right way. Yeah. So can you share some of those things as to how we're discerning which DeFi to invest in and so on? Yeah. So investing in crypto can be an absolute emotional roller coaster. You know, it's, you've, you've, you know, these pump and dumps, these, these buying meme coins. And, you know, I've done all of that. Yeah. I've had experience with that. I know what that feels like. And so I think what I, what I realize is that investing in anything has very little to do with knowledge of that asset. 
learning the language, learning how to press the buttons in crypto is actually pretty easy. We can get that done pretty quickly. What it is is how to navigate this landscape of emotion, how mm -hmm. to build a machine, a reliable machine that can produce cash flow, especially if we're talking about business treasury money. We do not want to subject our principal to any risk whatsoever, more than is necessary. And, and so when we are looking at this problem, we're looking at it through a lens of you know, the frameworks and the principles that you alluded to. And I guess there's a couple different ways you can invest in, in uh, DeFi. What I choose to do is invest in an ecosystem. And so we just, I feel very, very fortunate to have met some of the, the top leaders and thinkers in this space. They're you know, mentors of mine and um, have been absolutely fantastic to help me understand this space. And what they've, they've showed me is there's a way to in, invest in ecosystems, not just one coin hoping that it goes up in value. Mm. That's a fool's errand. So that's what we do in the Whale Club is we teach people how to, to look at these different ecosystems to, to evaluate them, to make decisions, and then ultimately how to build your machine so you don't have this massive emotional roller coaster that we can accumulate and increase our, our business treasury over time. Yeah. And I think one of the things is, I don't want to say like it's no risk because that would be an outright lie. Right. Uh, we don't want to say this is low risk. There's risk involved. We just, we just put less risk with the guardrails in place and you get to share, you get to learn from his bonehead mistakes he's made here and there. Yeah. I mean, everything's risky, right? Yeah. Getting into a car is risky. Starting a real estate business is risky. Investing in stocks is risky, clearly. Investing in, in crypto is risky. These yeah. are all risky things. So it's not about trying to eliminate risk. It's trying to uh, domesticate it, yeah. right? We want to reduce it as, as much as possible, take as you know, least amount of risk, um, with the least amount of effort as possible. Um, so I do want to get to some of these questions. Uh, before I get into these questions, uh, I want to uh, run something here. Um, while we pull that up, let's jump into this here. Um, so on IG, Joshua's growth. Any current strategies to share with the market heading in an uncertain place for sellers and how to capitalize on that? Yeah, I got a lot of thoughts on that. Um, it, it comes back to this, the frameworks of building your machine. And I alluded earlier to this barbell strategy of investing. It's the same thing that we see in, in uh, crypto and in DeFi. So on one side of this barbell, we want to have as much reliability as possible. And we use things like stable pairs. I know I'm getting pretty technical with these mm -hmm. terms. Um, these are essentially taking coins pegged to the U.S. dollar. Now, of course, everybody, I have to put a caveat on that. Everyone's familiar with what happened, or if they're familiar with blockchain, they're familiar with ha what happened to Terra mm -hmm. and Luna. And we've learned that algorithmically backed stable coins are very dangerous. They are prone to you know, losing a lot of value. So what we prefer to do is find stable coins that are truly pegged to a U.S. dollar. And we can pair those two coins together and we can earn a very modest return, something like eight, nine, 10%. And then we can take the yield that we earn from that side, the reliability side, and we can shift it over to the other side of the barbell where we expose it to more risk with a lot higher upside. 
the idea here is we're trying to play with house money right. and, and, and only play with house money. And so you can't remove all the risk, but when you're only playing with house money, you have a lot less risk on the table. And so my approach right now is trying to evaluate different reliable places to, to put my core capital. We talk about this in you know, our weekly calls in the Whale Club. Where can we find reliability in this marketplace? Um, and a lot of it just comes back to me with stable pairs yeah. and finding you know, places like that. I think, though, with, with this question here, he's talking about as far as homeowners, right? Working with homeowners, because we got this delta, right? We got homeowners that think their houses are still here or it's like for sure going up, right? Mm -hmm. We got these homeowners with this idea. Mm -hmm. And the buyers, if you're wholesaling, um, that this market's going down. Right. How do you deal with this uncertainty right now? I think our approach is uh, what we call optionality. Mm -hmm. We, we, the analogy we give on our team is um, there's a big difference between wholesaling and being a wholesaler. So, you know, to a hammer, everything looks like a nail, right? And when you go in with one strategy, you're trying to hammer everything down. So what we do is as, you know, home buyers, we go in with a tool belt. We go in and we can pay full retail. We can mm -hmm. list that house. We can use novation strategies. We can... There's a lot of different things that we can do. So our approach is the same as it was before. It's going to be the same tomorrow. It's going to be in the same in a year from now. We want to have as many options as possible so that when we're sitting in front of that homeowner, even if they want full retail, we can still, we can you still can take still that lead. can still craft a solution That's that right. fits their criteria. Right. Awesome. You're wholesaling real estate and you're doing deals, but you're probably a little concerned about the market recession, how it might interrupt your business, possibly unsure how to navigate these conditions. Wait, not our Sales Disruptors event from August 18 to 19 teaches wholesalers our sales process on how to buy more houses during an economic recession. You're gonna learn how to overcome seller rejections, how to position yourself as an authority figure that sellers will trust even in declining market conditions. Sign up today, disruptors.com slash sales disruptors and get all the tools you're gonna to need to so, thrive and prevent uh, your IG, business. So on IG, Nostradamus says that that was a great explanation. So he had a light bulb moment. He or she had a light bulb moment. So I think that's, that's awesome, awesome, right? We're getting to a point where we can explain this without us sounding like we're speaking a completely different language, which is the biggest challenge. That is the hardest part is taking this very technical, very computer science gamer type world and figuring out how to explain it to an audience because we're doing these things. We, we understand these principles and these strategies. It's just a new domain. We have to be able to translate. And that's, you know, obviously that's what you and I are working on. Yeah. Uh, so another question, IG, will blockchain integration into real estate reduce the title and escrow costs in closing time? What are your thoughts on that? Yes. And I think it's going to take a while. I think we're, I, I don't even want to give a number to it because I have no idea, but certainly blockchain has massive utility. We call it accounting 3.0 mm -hmm. and you know, how we account for assets is going to change because this technology is so revolutionary. So yes, I think over the next, let's call it three to five years, we're going to start to see some changes in that space. And, um, I think it's going to add a lot of value. Yeah, I think so too. Uh, I think we're probably more than 35 years away the more I think about it, just because we need that first leg of the transaction to be recorded into the blockchain. Right. And then when they sell it later on, 
then it's a faster transaction. So we need the second transaction, not the first one, is going to be faster, right? So for the next three, five, seven years, it's going to be this really slow drip. And it may be 10 to 15 years. Tile will be streamlined. I have no idea. I'm just really skeptical that uh, of the next three to five years, just because uh, a you have to have that first leg recorded because we're not going to go and record every deed onto the blockchain, right? Unless someone has a lot of money and time to go <laughs> make that investment happen. Yeah, you'd have to gradually do that, and then uh, after that, or on top of that, there's a lot of money in title. So I think there's a lot of you know we're talking about big title fighting it. And actually, I was I was on TikTok last night. I don't spend a lot of time on there as much anymore. But there was a guy who talked about. This um this conundrum this um what's it called it's a paradox it's like we're taking something that's decentralized no accountability right like this is whole other world and we're take something as complex as like a deed a deed of trust uh, a promissory note and it's all gonna go through a recorder's office <clears throat> so like this is poor Judy like who's like an underpaid right. <laughs> overworked employee yeah and we're gonna entrust her to make sure everything's done right on the Ethereum blockchain. Yeah. Well, I think it's going to come to applications. There's mm-hmm. going to be people who are going to create that product. They're going to create the ease of use. It's going to take some time yeah. because, you you know, implementing that technology is not easy in such an entrenched industry like that. So I, I, I agree with you. It's going to take a long time. How long it takes, I have no idea, but it's certainly got a lot of utility. It's going to make things oh, a lot it's got easier. it a ton of utility. Yeah. yeah. I mean, in 20 years, it's going to be like, these we're they're gonna look at us like cavemen yeah right it's just is it gonna be closer to three years or is it gonna be closer to 15 years we don't know right uh on ig l kompovich what do you guys think about a recession so i guess probably what they're trying to ask is do you think there's a recession coming i think so yeah what do you think is going to happen with the recession i think people who are over leveraged and overextended and don't have cash flowing assets and have overbuilt their business over the last 14 years are going to fail. Mm-hmm. And the people who, you know, haven't done those things, uh, are going to be in good shape. Yeah. I think what's, um, I got a chance to listen to Marcus Krigler talk. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's the, he's the, the CPA. And he said something last week when we were at collective genius, he said that, um, everyone should have a million dollars in the bank. I was like, Man, that that sounds wonderful, right? So now I'm actively going to get money. So uh, the first thing we did yesterday, yeah, yesterday, was start calling around, mm-hmm. asking for money. Mm-hmm. So um, got approved, right? So we have a hundred thousand dollar line of credit right now for our business, tentatively approved for over four hundred. So that's exciting. That is exciting. Yeah, uh, but that's uh, calling around all the banks. Yeah, I mean, what just. I think it's, uh, this is the whole concept of the business treasury. It's, we want liquidity, I think is what it comes down to. Cash in the bank kind of makes me cringe a little bit. Mm -hmm. Um, But of course, we need liquid cash. It needs to be stored somewhere. Where are you storing it? How is it serving you? And uh, these are very good questions to be asking right now. Yeah. And, And for us, it was really about, you know, we're still making money, but... Uh, the question is, if your revenue dropped thirty percent next thirty percent next month for, and for the next few months, how's everything looking? Mm-hmm. Right, and those are real questions to be asking for everyone that's in business. Yep. Uh, let's see. Um, not as many questions here uh, talking about uh, the the business treasury. So, I think maybe potentially we have some people that 
Uh, I guess this might be a newer term as well. Business treasury. Where did you get that term from? It's not my term. I got it from some of my mentors. But what you're describing is is the business treasury. Yeah. <clears throat> if your business took a 30% hit in revenue, would you be able to survive that? We would. Yeah. Because we have a business treasury right. that's spitting out cash flow that can pay my operating expenses. It gives me a lot of freedom to move through this market without worrying of whether it's a recession or not. I'm looking at it as this great buying opportunity. Yeah, everything's and, gonna be on sale. Yeah, everything's on sale. And it's the same strategy that we're using in crypto. We wanna create a position so that when bad things happen, we benefit from it. Um, I actually heard uh, Jimmy Vreeland mention this on one of your previous shows, and he was talking about this book, Anti-Fragile, mm -hmm. um, Nassim Nicholas Taleb, and, and he describes this you know, things that gain from disorder. Is your business one where when the conditions of the market shift, do you get stronger or do you get weaker, right? Mm -hmm. If you've built your business when bad things happen in the world, bad things happen to you and your business and you, you have no way to, to capitalize on that, I think that you're, you're going to experience more emotional turbulence, more trouble in a downturn than those who look at bad things as this is an opportunity for us. Yeah. Uh, Matt Recor, one of the smartest guys I've met um, in, in, in the real estate community for sure, um, asks, where does the yield from a stable coin actually come from? That's a really good question. So Fairly complicated one to explain, but when you are building, uh, when you have a decentralized exchange, it exists on a certain network. So the particular network in this case that we're using is the Binance Smart Chain. So Binance, which is the centralized exchange, has a network for decentralized platforms to build on. And essentially, the short answer is, is that a lot of the money comes from Binance in trading fees that come back to the liquidity holders yeah so matt basically we're looking at the all those transaction fees that again whether it's the the stock trader e-trade or whatever these they make 15 to 100 bucks on on a transaction yep instead of that transaction going to e-trade it's going to the uh decentralized bank and for us owning just a fraction of it that's where we get our yield. Right. We benefit from really three ways. One is more uh, the trading fees. Mm -hmm. So anytime there's volume, anytime there's a transaction, you're paying a trading fee, and that's what we're talking about here. Um, we also get yield from the farm, uh, and we also get appreciation of the assets. So similar to a real estate deal, you would get appreciation, you'd get loan pay down, and you'd get cash flow from the rental property. And in this case, that cash flow comes from Binance. So it's kind of crazy, but when Bitcoin's on the way up or on its way down, we make extra yield. Right. Still, still trading, still volume. You yeah. still got to pay fee to do it. Yeah. So it's unfortunate for everyone that's dumping or whatever, but. That's right. And yeah. honestly, that question is more nuanced than what I've just explained. But, it, yeah. you know, for the sake of time, uh, if you want to go and check out, you know, our website or our Discord, you can, there's tons of information on, on that and how it all breaks down. But it's a fairly technical explanation. Yeah, so Blockchain Whales, Matt, uh, there'll, be, there'll be more information. Sorry, blockchainwhales.com. So um, I guess, you know, for you, what is your why? Why do you, why are you doing this? 
Well, why I got into business for myself was really to get closer to the things that I want. Mm-hmm. I don't think I realized that, 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 that term until I got a little further in. Um, but certainly that's what's most important to me is helping, first of all, getting closer to the things that, you know, I, my family want, but I think I have a, a massive passion for helping other people do the same thing and getting off this idea of chasing more defining clearly what you want and getting closer to those things without the need for chasing more. Yep. Uh, what is your biggest struggle right now? I would say untangling the accounting mess that I made last year, right? <laughs> Growing really fast. And, you know, I was not a business owner in year one. I was a, I was a salesperson. I had to learn how to be a business owner and I made a huge mess of things. So I'm working with my accountant right now and uh, accounting is not something that I enjoy. So that's been a big struggle for me to sit down and actually start untangling this mess and getting things you know sorted and, yeah, it's been that's been my struggle. I think as far as personality profiles, I think the most exact opposite of a salesperson is accounting. Right. I don't think there could be more diverse uh, profiles. Right. right? Well, and I'd love to hand it off, but I can't because it's a mess. So I've <laughs> I've got to fix it first and then be able to you know find someone else to do it because clearly I'm not going to do it. Yeah. How do you measure success? Well, I think it comes back to the mantra of getting closer to the things that you want. Uh, success is different for different people. You know, some people want more time. Some people want to make an influence in the world. Some people want money. Some people want energy. Some people want to build their reputation and their relationships. And these are all different currencies that we trade for success. And so, you know, for me, I'm looking to make an impact on the people that I care about the most. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's what success means for me. It's getting closer to, to those things, being able to help those people, and making sure that I have time to do it, which means, as you know, saying no to a lot of business opportunities, saying no to a lot of things. Um, that's, I think that's what I see as success. Yep. Uh, and what is your superpower? Well, seems to be navigating these large, complex uh, sales. And that's what I've done well uh, for my career. And I think that's what I continue to do well by raising money and starting new businesses and different things like that. So Yeah. And what is the greatest lesson that you have learned? That business doesn't have to be this constant uphill battle, right? You can build a business that supports what you want rather than what uh comparing to everybody else these you know these large businesses things like this and yeah that was a big realization for me when did you realize that this year you know i was caught in that comparison trap last year well you know this guy did this many deals well i want to do that many deals Mm. and um you know that's a dangerous game to play you you end up getting out of your element playing someone else's game yeah, so I, I think it was really this year and through some of the, the mentorship that I've had from, you know, guys on the crypto side have helped me understand uh, my game better. Yeah. And I think that it's key. Like, it's, it's, it's hard to overstate, you know, like that lesson because so many of us are like, oh, we'll just push harder, right? I, 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 in order to catch them, I got to wake up earlier. I got to work longer. I got to go to more appointments, you know, get, and sacrificing mm-hmm. time with family and so on. And really, it doesn't have to be that way. 
there's a way to do it without having to suffer, but a lot of us choose suffering. Yeah. Um, is there a favorite, best, or most interesting failure besides the dead number? I mean, the dead number pretty much tops it, I'd say. Yeah, that was the that was the one that I just, I think about constantly. And it's just a representation of stop going so fast, slow down. Um, yeah. yeah, I'd say that's that's the one I think about the most. And is, uh, what book have you gifted more than any other? That's got to be Chris Voss, uh, Never Split the Difference. That's that's a classic. That's one I'll, I'll reread every year probably for the rest of my life. Really? Yeah, I love that book. It's a fantastic book. Yeah. Um, Thinking about maybe doing an event where we'll ask him to, 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 be, to be a speaker. You know, uh, you mentioned Anti-Fragile. Mm-hmm. And I actually put that book on my list. So we're finishing Story Brand. I was going through it a second time. And Donald I put, Miller, right? Yeah. yeah. That's a good one. So I was going to do uh, anti, or is it Anti-Fragility. Anti-Fragile, yeah. Anti-Fragile. So I was going to do that. But then um, everyone's really interested right now in creative financing, creative mm-hmm. acquisitions, creative disposition. So I'm going to basically be locking myself in a room or whatever, and be listening to that. So I'm gonna have to put anti-fragility or anti-fragile on the side for now. Well, I think he would he would appreciate that because he talks a lot about optionality in his book, and what <laughs> you're doing is if you're pursuing optionality with that. Yeah, so. there's a lot of people that are asking questions about this, like you know, help me with this, help me with that. It's like I can't help you today. Right. <laughs> Give me a couple months. Uh-huh. So uh, um, I want you to think about something you want to leave the listeners with while I make a, a couple of quick announcements. Uh, again, guys, if you're interested in having a business treasury, something that's going to pay for your business operating expenses, go to blockchainwells.com. Paul and I are doing this together. I think that this is going to be helpful for uh, some of you, not everybody. I don't think it's going to be for everybody, but for some of you guys, I think it's going to be something that could be you know, uh, an extra uh, vehicle uh, for your business, an extra tool uh, for your business. Uh, if you guys got value today, please like, subscribe, share, comment. Uh, the more reactions we get on social media the more people we will reach and we're trying to reach as many people as possible we do have our event coming up in a couple of months sales disruptors go to disruptors.com slash sales disruptors if you guys want to close more deals at deeper margins and tomorrow is our next episode pardon the disruption we did our first episode last week um that was really fun we got a lot of positive feedback about that so tomorrow one o'clock eastern ten o'clock pacific check that out uh, what are some last thoughts you want to leave everyone with? Well, clearly the, the economy and the market is shifting. And if you're at all worried about that and you're struggling with cash flow, you, you really should consider uh, utilizing this business treasury strategy. It's, it's just, it's opened up a lot of options for me and my team. Um, you don't have to build someone else's business. You can build your business that you want and you can do it and act like a bank and mm-hmm. use it to support you, uh, even in, you know, in bad times. Uh, even though that's unseen at this point, we don't know what's coming. But yeah, if, if, that's, if that's something that is on your mind is cash flow and how to protect your business and your interests, definitely come check us out and uh, see what we're doing with the business treasury. Yeah, and it's, I think it's kind of the same thing. We've had uh, Chris Noggle on here. We've had Chris Miles on here. And they talk about the importance of becoming your own bank. And this is just another variation of becoming your own bank. So uh, if someone wants to get a hold of you, what's the best way to, to, to get to reach you? So I've not been a social media person, but everyone at CG tells me I have to. So if, if, uh, 
if you guys want to follow me on Instagram, that would be helpful. I don't have a ton of friends yet. So <laughs> <laughs> you can find me at Paul Sparks Official uh, on Instagram. You can shoot me an email uh, at paul at bunnyhillproperties.com. Or you can check us out on Blockchain Wales. We're going to be doing a, a webinar next week on July 7th, talking about what we're doing with the business treasury, going into a little bit more depth. Um, so if you're interested in learning about that or getting a hold of me, you can find me in those places. Awesome. Thank you very much. A blast. Thanks, Thank Steve. you. Yeah. Thank you all for watching. See you all next week. Jump on the Steve train. We real estate disruptors.